to the book of Judges. We just began a series through this book last week, so we're still in the first chapter. We're going to look at verses 22 to 36 down to the end of the chapter. The introduction to this book actually in the book goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. So uh, we have a, a few more sermons where we're really dealing with some uh, introductory material, but this is helpful in terms of giving us an overview of what's going to be coming toward us in the whole book. Now, Judges is well known for famous stories like about Samson and Gideon and some of these uh, great deliverers of God's people, and yet uh, the overarching narrative is is quite a different one. It's not one of, of great heroism, but quite the opposite. And so as we look at the passage today, just a a warning, there's going to be a lot of place names and uh, tribal names, and it's probably not going to make a whole bunch of sense uh, to us right off the bat. But what we're actually seeing here is an overview of what's coming in the book that we're going to get in a lot more detail in the book. And sadly, uh, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, But let's give attention uh, because God has a word in here for us. We'll begin at verse 22 of Joshua, or sorry, of Judges chapter 1. Did I say Joshua earlier? Sometimes, okay. Well, it's Judges. We're all together on that, right? All right. Verse 22. This is God's word. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth-Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass, when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but they did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab, Akzib, Helba, Aphek, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, where, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anah were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalabim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. And there we'll end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. 
There is an outline in the bulletin that you might find helpful. Again, we've got a map in there, and so I'll be referring to this uh, as we uh, try to figure out what we just read and the significance of it. Now, I know I mentioned in a sermon a few weeks back that um, in my youth I had attended a military academy, and uh, someone came up to me and thought that that meant I went to like the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy. I want to make it very clear, this was in high school, this is secondary school. I did not attend one of the service academies, so this was a, a boarding school run on a military model. And uh, children, I wanted to tell you a story, I'm not very proud of this actually, that happened when I was there, and toward the end of the year, there was the big inspection that uh, all the different units were going to go through. And uh, I was going to be out of town, but I was supposed to prepare my room for inspection. And so um, that meant, you know, making the bed just right and having everything in its place. And uh, I did all that. I had everything looking pretty good. But then I had a wardrobe, kind of a locker, and I stuffed all the extra stuff that I hadn't really found a good place for into the locker and sort of tried to latch it in the hopes that no one would open the locker. And since I wasn't going to be there, I figured, you know, what are the odds they're really going to get into the details in my room? And then I left. And then when I came back, I found out that sure enough, uh, because you're being inspected by students and other units, and they want you to fail, right? they, they had found my locker, they had gotten into it, and they had seen that I really hadn't done all that I was supposed to do. And that actually affected the rest of the, the people in my unit in a, in a negative way. And, uh, and that's sort of what's going on in this passage, that sometimes we can obey God partway. We can kind of do it so it looks right, but we don't do it all the way. And when we don't obey God all the way, uh, the consequences are very bad. And uh, these things sometimes happen over time. Uh, th- th- this, this is true in, in nations. And of course, when we look at the book of Judges, we're looking at what's happening in a nation as well as what's happening in individual lives. Um, I, I heard the audio from a school board meeting in Dearborn, Michigan a few weeks ago and, and just was amazed that you had people arguing over whether or not it was appropriate to put sexually explicit material into the library in the grade school. And, and just the idea that, the, that it was an argument was sort of mind-boggling to me, but, but we see in our own culture the, 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 the fruit of years of turning away from God's word and seeing how that bears fruit in a culture, and the same dynamic that happens over time in a people happens in our own personal lives. And so as we try to sort through uh, the place names and what seems to be very confusing as we read this, you'll see that there's a warning here for us about the fact that little compromises lead to greater compromises and then to sin that gets entrenched in our lives and it pulls us away from God. And the book of Judges, of course, as it puts that into perspective for us, is calling us to turn away from half-hearted obedience and to cling to our perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope we'll see as we look at the passage together. And this is in your outline. The downward, downward spiral of sin begins with seemingly minor compromises. We are to turn from half-hearted obedience and cling to our sinless Savior. 
And children, if you're going to draw a picture of this, you might draw a picture of yourself, maybe when you've been tempted to do something wrong, maybe to tease your, your younger brother or sister or something like that, and how you can turn away from that to do what God wants you to do. Well, the first thing I'd like us to see as we start working through the outline you have there is that the downward spiral of sin begins with seemingly minor compromises. Now, again, to just orient us, the book of Judges unfolds over a time period from about 1370 B.C. to 1050 B.C. And if you turn inside the little outline that you have, um, just inside... I have there given you a list of important dates relative to this book. And these are approximations because we don't know for sure. But just to put this book in the context of other things that happen in the Old Testament. So the exodus from Egypt, when Moses leads the people out of Egypt in around 1450 to, uh, 1440 to 1450 B.C. And then the wilderness wanderings, where the people are in the wilderness from 1450 to 1410 Uh, because they wouldn't obey God. And then God brings them into the promised land, and that happens, the conquest from around 1410 to 1403. And then, as we read last week, Joshua dies, the leader, around 1370. And then we have this time period of the judges from around 1370 to 1050. And it ends when the first king is installed, and that is Saul in 1050. And then Saul is replaced by David, in 1010 BC. So that's the time frame. Just to give you an outside perspective, King Tut, uh, the famous Pharaoh, was the Pharaoh from 1332 to 1323 BC. So sort of at the beginning of this time period that we're talking about in in the late stages of what's called the Bronze Age. So that's what's happening. And we remember that in the initial conquest that they had sort of taken over uh, the main part of the land, but there was much work to be done. And Joshua had assigned the different tribes, the 12 tribes, to go and secure their different areas and to settle in the land and to establish their nation. Now, we read last week that the tribe of Judah started out first and had some success. And now we come in verse 22 to sort of the other tribes, and they are having Uh, not such success. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So in verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. So Joseph, you remember, was the prominent of the 12 sons who became the Pharaoh's assistant down in Egypt, and that's how why the whole family had gone down to Egypt. So Joseph was very prominent, and he was blessed in that his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were both given a place uh, in a sense, with their uncles. And so the Joseph tribes are the large tribes, the prominent tribes. And so here they go up against the city of Bethel, and that is on your map, sort of in, in the middle of it. And, uh, and it tells us that God was with them in verse 23. The Lord was with them. So the Lord was with them, and then what did they do? They sent spies. Um, I was watching the IU... A football game yesterday, and I know some of you were also doing that, and uh, we all know what an exercise in, in futility that was, but hope springs eternal, and we're ever loyal uh, to uh, the cream and crimson. But uh, after halftime, when it was clear things were not going our way, uh, I noticed in, in quick succession, 
Uh, we tried an end-around play followed by an end-around flea flicker play. And so I thought to myself, when the trick plays come out, you know, there's a time and a place for those, but it's often a sign that you really don't have much confidence that the regular stuff is going to work. Like, you, you know you're outgunned, and so now you're going for the trick stuff. And it sort of seems like that's what's happening here, because these people, the, the text tells us the Lord was with them. And yet, they go ahead and send spies out anyway. They try to find a secret way into Bethel, and they find a man who tells them how to do that. And uh, so then they go ahead and conquer the city, and it seems as if, well, uh, this vindicates what they did, right? This must have been the right thing, except for the fact that it says they let the man and his family go, and the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city, and it called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. Uh, one of the commentators commenting on this and said, uh, even in executing the harem, that was the, 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 the Hebrew word for what they were to do, this conquest, the Joseph tribes, in effect, produce another Canaanite city. They, they didn't exactly do what God told them to do. I give you some examples of this in, inside the bulletin. There are some cross-references. This is from Exodus 34, verses 10 to 12. And here, this is years before, God says to them, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are, are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I'm driving out before you, from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. They were to be a people dedicated to serving God. And we talked about this last year. It's a difficult thing. But the people, there was, there was a bloodthirsty people who, who, were, who were wicked in so many ways, and God was using his people as, a, in a sense, a tool of judgment. And they were to come in, and they were not to make partnerships with them. They were to take the land and convert it into a kingdom that was to serve God. And so the fact that right at the beginning here, they compromise in a, in a small way to make, in a sense, a covenant with one family to send this man off to form a new town, it's an evidence not of their obedience, but of the fact that they're, they're, they're going to just take small compromises and they'll tell themselves, well, we affected the final outcome, it's all okay. And it's not, as we're going to see, okay. It's actually them starting a move away from following God and doing what he's asked them to do in the details. Now, I know some of you children, your families have visited the hot springs out in Yellowstone Park. And uh, that's a very fun place to go to. Unfortunately, there's so many tourists there now, it sort of feels like you're going to Disney World when you're out there, but it's still very, very beautiful. And one of the things you'll find out is if you go to the hot springs, you have to stay on the boardwalk as you walk to the hot springs. And from time to time, uh, people don't do that. And uh, I read a story about a man who fell into one of the hot springs and they said there was really nothing of the man to fish out uh, because it's, uh, the water's boiling 
They're literally bubbling up. The boiling temperature is a little lower at that kind of altitude. But when you fall into boiling water, you don't last very long at all. And in every case where someone falls into the hot springs and, and perishes, they first take a step off the boardwalk. It doesn't seem like a big deal. Just getting a little bit off the path where you're supposed to be. But it often can have profound impacts. And that's what we're seeing in this text. And that's what you also see in your life. I just, I'm just going to go visit this website just, to, just briefly. I'm just going to watch this show. I'm going to just drive a little faster. I'm going to spend time with this person that I know I shouldn't. And, and so it's just a little compromise. It's just doing something a little bit out of the way. And yet God says that this inevitably leaves us, leads us into very difficult places. Some, some of the commentators and some of us sometimes think, you know, God told Moses when they were in the wilderness to speak to the rock and bring forth water. And Moses struck the rock. And we say, what's the difference? It was a big difference. And God ended up keeping Moses from actually going into the promised land because he didn't obey God fully. And it's a warning to us what happens when we begin to compromise in ways that we think are minor. So down, the downward spiral begins with seemingly minor compromises. Secondly, small compromises can lead to entrenched patterns of sin in your life. So yes, there is this seemingly small compromise, and yet there was success. They, they did actually capture the city of Bethel. Well, then in verses 27 to 33, we see how this progresses into greater and greater failing. So in succession, beginning in verse 27, we learn about the tribe of Manasseh and then the tribe of Ephraim in verse 29, uh, the tribe of Zebulun in verse 30, the tribe of Asher in verses 31 and 32, and the tribe of Naphtali in verse 33. And the one thing they have in common is all of them fail to secure the land that they were given. The repeated refrain is they did not drive them out. They did not drive them out. And if you look at the map that I gave you, uh, and you can do this for your homework assignment, you can go on and find all the town, not all, but many of the towns that are mentioned. But in general, what God had said to them was that they were going to have this whole land all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and then beyond the Jordan River. That was all supposed to be their land. And if you look on the map, only the green part is where they actually settled and possessed the land. So all of the uh, beige on the fringe along the uh, Mediterranean coast on the western part of their land, they didn't do the job that they were given to do. And so many of these towns are listed in this area, all up along there. That was their land, and God had said, you need to go in there and settle it, and they were not successful in doing that. Again, uh, looking at the, uh, 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 another important cross-reference here from Joshua chapter 23. This is what God promised that he would do for them. He says, see, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes. From the Jordan, 
with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward, right, to the Mediterranean, it's all yours. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight, so you shall possess their land, as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. So there's God promising the entire land and telling them to trust him and to take it. Tim Keller is speaking about this as it's not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessings or from worshiping God wholeheartedly. It is our lack of faith in his strength. This was the problem. It's our lack of faith in his strength. Now you may be saying, well, I'm sure they tried really hard to do what God told them to do. And they, they were just outmatched, you know, don't be so hard on them. But that's not, in fact, what was going on at all. In fact, it goes on to tell us in a number of, number of places that they had the strength to do it as they grew more numerous and they, and they refused to do it. So, for example, in verse 28, and it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. Another translation, instead of saying putting them under tribute, says puts them to forced labor. So they have rationalized now that they will not do what God tells them to do, but rather they will conscript these people and use them as some sort of vassals to serve their kingdom. And so maybe they see a financial incentive to do this. Hey, it's okay if we don't actually drive these people out because we can make money out of it, but the problem is that as they leave these people there in their midst, they're going to be a constant thorn in their side, as we're going to see later, drawing them away from serving God, that God understood that this would be the problem for them. Again, quoting from commentator Ralph Davis this time, he said, they are like a surgeon who removes only part of the cancer because even cancer has a right to grow and find fulfillment. Tolerance and suicide our congenial bedfellows. Isn't that interesting? If, if we, we think we can allow certain things to exist, and they, they thought, well, we can actually make money of it. No, we didn't do exactly what God said, but as a, as a general practice, we almost did what God said, and after all, this is more financially profitable to us, and they're, they're setting themselves up for complete disaster. I know some of you know that I, I did not become... Uh, a believer until I was in college, and uh, I had developed some bad habits uh, prior to that, and uh, one of my struggles was, was my language, uh, very, good, very serious struggles controlling my tongue, and so as I started to realize the, 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 the sinfulness of that, and God was helping me uh, work on gaining better control of my language, uh, I'm reminded still that if I just compromise a little bit, how quickly I can be back uh, into those battles that I've struggled with. That in some ways we can never have just a little bit of this or that thing that we're tempted toward. We have to have none of it or else it's going to come in it's going to invade. You see this all over the place in our culture today. The way our public discourse works, the, the things people say about each other on social media, 
the way young people speak to their teachers and their parents sometimes, the way you may deal with your struggles with anger or impatience or road rage or telling you know, little white lies or self-control when it comes to your eating, your drinking, or what you watch on TV. We often make excuses for ourselves. This is, this is not me going back there. This is just minor And yet this is what happens inevitably. We tolerate small compromises and that leads us then back into habits that are against what God wants for our lives. So these these patterns can then become entrenched. And thirdly, that's what we see. These entrenched patterns can expand and harden into more blatant disobedience. And in verse 34 of our text, we're told about the tribe of Dan. It says the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains for they would not allow them to come to the valley. The tribe of Dan is uh, sort of a case study in dysfunction in this whole book of Judges. Uh, You might not be surprised that Samson came uh, from the tribe of Dan. And by the end of the book, Dan is involved in full-fledged idolatry. And as they're pictured here, Right, beginning with they're not able to resist the inroads of the Canaanites living around them. So quite, you know, quite a, a, another matter from they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, the Canaanites are actually pushing them out of where they are supposed to be. And so if you look on the map again, it mentions some of these, uh, Gezer and some of these places down here. Dan was supposed to be down here where there's a little finger of yellow sticking into the middle. And because they, they weren't even able you know, to, to go in there at all, uh, a group of them ends up all the way up at the very north. You see there's a city called Dan, way up at the north of the green part. And that's where a bunch of them end up. We'll read about it later in the book because they're actually driven out of the place that they are supposed to be. And uh, this is a picture of what happens. And again, we're told in verse 35 that later on, these people down in that more southern area are put to forced labor. So it's not an issue of strength, it's an issue of willingness to follow God and to do what God says. And so here we have a tribe that literally is pushed away from their own land because they're so unwilling to follow and to obey God. And this is just human nature. Students, our students, children, I know you've, uh, you've heard the story of Cain and Abel. No, I wouldn't actually tell this story to my students, uh, but, um, but you are all students here. Um, Cain and Abel, and you remember those two brothers, um, they both brought an offering to God. And the Bible says that God accepted Abel's offering, but did not accept Cain's offering. And we don't know exactly why that was, but at a minimum, Cain did not come with the right spirit uh, when, he, when he offered his offering to God. And there's an interesting passage in the book of Genesis because it says that Cain's countenance fell when his offering was not accepted. And look at what it says in Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so what starts as jealousy 
and anger in this man's life leads to murder. And he goes out into the field and he beats his brother to death violently. This is how sin works, though. This, thankfully, most people don't turn out to be murderers. We can be very grateful for that. Some people do. We can be very grateful by God's grace. Most people don't. But it does show how this progression works. That This is sort of an inevitable slide, this moving toward the path of least resistance, where sin that we harbor in our heart, and this is what God says to Cain, watch out. Sin is there crouching at the door. It wants to master you. But what does he need? You must master it. You must resist it. It takes effort. It takes fight in order for us to resist temptation and sin. And if we just go along with the natural flow of things, we fall farther and farther into sin. Many people quit going to church during the COVID lockdowns. There were reasons for that. But after the lockdowns were over, and some estimates are as high as maybe 20% of people in churches are still not going back to church. And what's happened? It's new patterns, new ways of life, and these things just become entrenched And now we're totally off on our own trying to operate away from the the corporate body and the people of God. This is an inevitable slide unless we fight against it, that entrenched patterns of sin harden into more blatant disobedience. And what this leads to, fourthly, this downward spiral of sin ultimately leads you away from God. Uh, one of the commentators, I didn't put this in your outline, says this, this section isn't merely a pile of stuff, but a carefully organized pile of stuff. Again, it's hard for us to figure out what's going on. But there isn't an actual flow to what's being described that shows us something profound. And if you take the whole of chapter 1, again, looking at this map, it begins with Judah in the south. And then it's, it's more or less moving farther and farther northward through the peoples as it talks about their various failings. And you've got this flow from south to north that's also paralleling a flow uh, from obey, obedience to God to, uh, to more and more failure and more and more disobedience. And that movement is being presented to us by the author. So what's interesting is in the, in the, even in these verses we've read, in the early verses, right, it talks about there are some Canaanites allowed to live among the Israelites. Then it moves to some Israelites are sort of allowed to live amongst the Canaanites till at the end when we talk about Dan, uh, and it's almost like the conquest in reverse where the, the uh, Canaanites are pushing them out of their land altogether. And so what the author is doing is presenting this as we move farther away, we move farther away from God. And this is, in fact, what was going on. And this is, this is an overview of the book as a whole. As we get into it, and we can't really understand the story of Samson, the story of Gideon, unless you realize that this is the story of the people moving farther away from God. 
and how that works in their corporate life together. Uh, Commentator Paul House describes it this way. He says, the overall impression is one of self-inflicted chaos suffered by a people who forget who they are and how they got to Canaan. And that is a, a helpful way to say it. When we forget who we are, how we've gotten where we are, who God is, that this is often what happens to us. It leads us away from being the people God wants to be. And yes, this happens nationally, but we should be even more concerned about what happens in the church itself and what happens in our own lives when we allow small compromises to come in and we drift further and further away from God's word and ultimately away from God himself. The scripture tells us about this danger in other places. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is our fate, all of us, and sin puts us away from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is what sin does. It separates us from God, from his love and from his grace. And Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin is real, it's dangerous, it's a constant threat to each one of us. It leads away from God, it leads to spiritual death. And yet God says there is life in his son, Jesus Christ. And that is our fifth point, that your only hope is to turn away from half-hearted obedience and cling to the sinless Savior. Again, the problem of this whole book and these people is summarized in the final verse of the book. I put this also in your outline. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we kind of think today that, hey, you do your thing. Everybody doing their own thing is a, is a good thing. It's a virtue. Well, in this sense that everyone was deciding what was right and wrong based on their own ideas, not on what God had told them, was not a good thing. And the book shows us what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And doing what's right in your own eyes, what he says, it it puts you on this path of least resistance, this downward spiral from compromise to ingrained patterns of this and then into disobedience and ultimately into spiritual death. And highlighting this process, which is what the author of Judges is doing, is meant to warn us away from this, to show us the dangers of this sort of half-hearted partial obedience, but also to point us to the one who came from God and called himself the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus comes to us and says, yes, you're all by nature on this spiral away from God, and I am the way, the truth, and the life that is to bring you to God and to salvation. And this is why we read about Jesus' confrontation with the devil earlier in the service. Jesus comes as a human being, the son of God, into the world. And he faces real temptation. And he doesn't compromise even a little bit. And because he does that, he's able to be the savior for people like you and me who compromise all the time. But that's the whole point. Jesus never compromised. 
Not even a little bit. He never got sinfully angry. He never lost his patience or his self-control. He was never unkind. He never said an untrue thing in his life. He never acted out of selfish motives. He always obeyed God's will fully every minute of his life. And because he did that for people like us, we can be counted as righteous in God's sight. The other thing Jesus did is he put himself into this spiral for us. This is the fate that we deserve for our compromise, to be put away from God. And Jesus, who was perfect, allowed himself to be put away from God. He went to the cross where God turned his back on him. And Jesus suffered in our place so that we don't have to go there. This doesn't have to be inevitable in our lives. That by God's grace, as we trust in him, we are able to begin to fight against temptation and to avoid small compromises that lead to bigger problems. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A beautiful summary of the gospel. Jesus bore our sin so that we in him could bear his righteousness. And that's our only hope, is that in Christ, in Christ, we would turn away from half-hearted obedience and we would cling to this one who is our sinless savior. So this downward spiral begins with seemingly minor compromises. Turn away, turn away from that path and cling to your savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us do this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus who indeed came into this sin-stained world and faced every kind of imaginable temptation. And yet, Lord, though he was perfect in every way from heaven and did not have to submit himself uh, to life in this world, he did that willingly. And he faced down every temptation and obeyed you perfectly in our place. And we thank you, Lord, that he also suffered uh, the fate that we deserve for our disobedience to you, our turning to our own selfish ways. And we thank you that our Lord uh, was put away from you so that his people, as we trust in you, would never experience that. Would we, uh, Lord, would you please help us to know and to trust the Lord Jesus and to be resting in his completed perfect work in our place And would you help us, Lord, as we face temptations of various kinds? Lord, well, we might be able to tell ourselves it's just a small step off the path to remind ourselves that uh, small compromises often lead to very, very bad things. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to be faithful to you and that in your strength we would turn away from a half-hearted form of obedience and we would joyfully follow wherever you will lead us in our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let's sing back to the Lord in praise from Psalm 3, selection B. This is a psalm of David, and David is facing many enemies, many obstacles, and yet he entrusts himself to God and is able to sleep peacefully 
because the Lord is with him. And this is how we need to function also, trusting in God to help us as we fight against temptation in our lives. Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 3B.